given a title to the sermon this morning. It's kind of long. How understanding the human nature of Jesus Christ helps us to live the way God wants us to live. Or if you're taking notes, you can call it the humanity of Jesus Christ. It is really hard not to sin. You guys have trouble with that? What, do you, what, what for you, you don't have to go into like great detail, but what, what is some of the harder things for you as a Christian to do or not do? Specific, uh, not too specific, but... <laughs> not be selfish. I mean, how hard is that? It is, it is my default position. It's probably yours. We are selfish to the core. We are selfish by nature. The first thing that I think of all the time is, how is this going to impact me? Rather than, how is it going to affect you? I have to work hard at not doing that. That's not easy. What else? Being self-centered. Yep, same idea. Say again? Making the time to study the Bible. Anybody else have trouble with that? We have the time. We all have 24 hours in a day, but how hard is it really to get established in a routine where you are regularly getting fed from the Word of God yourself? It's tough, and we know we're supposed to do it, but that's hard. What else? Patience. Having patience with people. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. It's an evidence that we're walking in the Spirit. It's a command of God to be patient with one another. God gives us trials so that we'll be patient. And yet, how many of you struggle with being patient? We want it happen quickly. You know, I don't want to have to go through this anymore. Hurry up, finish. We need to get to the next thing. Rather than waiting on God and trusting God for what's going to happen in life. You struggle with your flesh. You struggle with responding to people who may not have responded to you in a right way. Wow. It is not easy to live the way that God wants us to live. And it seems that from the start of our Christian experience, everything is against that. We live in a world that has no love for God. The first and foremost commandment is to love the Lord your God. We live in a world that has no love for God. And so for us to even attempt to live in a way where we display love for the Lord Jesus Christ and love for God makes us oddballs. To even talk about it in public is weird. The world has not only no love for God, but a supreme love for itself, and a supreme love for flesh, and a supreme love for sin. And living in this world in and of itself is, it makes it difficult. I guess you could imagine that there would be a place somewhere in this earth where all the Christians would be, and we could just live in harmony with each other. Men have dreamed about that and tried to make it happen, but there's another problem with men. You know what it is, right? If we all went there, what would we take with us? Us. So whatever, however we live in now, that's how we're going to live there. We bring with ourselves our own problems, and it, it speaks to the, the sin nature that lies within every man. And so not only is the world against me when I try to live the Christian life, I'm against myself. I can try and try and try to change myself, but my nature is what it is. God can change my nature, but I can't. And when we try to live for the Lord, we get major resistance from within. 
It happens to all of us. And you might think that we could get some encouragement from each other to live for the Lord. And I suppose in a setting like this, if we were to be asked the question, well, wouldn't you be interested in helping somebody else to not struggle with this and to help them get over a hump so that they could get over sin? And, and Yeah, but what are you really talking about? We don't do that, do we? You would think that in a community of brothers and sisters in Christ, we would all share in this idea that we, we need to be a body. We need to help each other out in our Christian lives. But most of the time, we don't. We go home and we live by ourselves. We don't call each other up. We don't talk to each other. We don't meet with each other. We don't try. It happens. I'm not, I'm not trying to condemn us wholesale. I'm just saying it really doesn't happen as much as it should. And so where do we go? If, if you are a believer in Christ this morning, I am. Where do I go? Where do I turn to help myself obey God and to change and to be sanctified and to live for him. The commands are all there. In fact, turn to um, 1 Peter chapter 2. God's word is clear. We are to no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again for us. In 1 Peter 2, verse 21, it says, For you have been called for this purpose. What purpose? Go back to verse 20. It's right in the middle of the verse. When you do what? Do what is right. That's what God calls us to do, to do what is right. If you do what is right and you suffer for it, you patiently endure it. And this finds favor with God when we do what's right. Is it right to forgive? Is it right to be patient? Is it right to have others in front of ourselves and think of others as better than ourselves? Is it right to deny our flesh? Is it right to not sin? Yes, 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 yes. It's right to do all of those things. When you do what is right, this finds favor with God. And in verse 21, you have been called for this purpose. God didn't save you just so that you could get a ticket to heaven. He saved you so that he could display his glory through you. So as he changes you from the inside and you display his character on the outside, he's glorified. So when you do what's right, when you are patient, when you forgive others, when you react in a right way, when you do read the word and are fed by the word, when you do the things that are right, that brings glory to God. And that is why he saved you. It wasn't for you. It was for him. You've been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, oh boy, leaving you what? An example that you should follow in his steps. Our standard of living is Jesus Christ himself. That's who we are to be like. Who is he? Verse 22, he committed no sin. His example, we are to follow in his steps. And what is the first thing it says about him? He didn't sin. Why? He didn't sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled or attacked, he didn't attack in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. 
but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. That's Jesus. And God says our example and our standard of living is him. And so, I don't know about you, but my first thought when I read this is that's not fair. How does God expect me, as a human being, to live like Jesus Christ, who's God? Doesn't he have a little bit of an advantage in the righteousness arena? Doesn't he have a little bit of an advantage in the patience arena, in the knowledge of God arena? How can God say Jesus is your example, your standard, when we are flesh, we are men, we are full of sin, and, and he puts this person, his son, who is perfect, without sin, and perfectly holy, and perfectly righteous before us as an example. And so the first thing, at least that I think, is maybe, how is that fair? And it led me to want to study this out a little bit more and understand the humanity of Jesus Christ, which led to a whole bunch of questions we're going to talk about this morning. Because if Christ, as a man, is my example, then that's where I need to look. Not to books, not to other men, but to Christ, because he is supreme. Now, pastors and teachers and writers and theologians have written about and spoken about the deity of Christ much, and rightly so, because the deity of Christ is attacked and it is the central, really the central part of our Christian faith. If we, if we understand that Jesus Christ is God, then um, all the doctrines that are related to the deity of Christ make perfect sense. And, and obviously, the deity of Christ, the, the fact that Jesus Christ is God himself, is an important, important um, tenet of our Christian faith. We need to understand that fully. It's central to our faith. However... I think the emphasis that we have placed on the deity of Christ, and rightly so, has left the humanity of Jesus Christ largely unthought about and not taught so much. This morning I want to explore some ideas related to the humanity of Christ because I think when we start to think about this dual nature of Christ, that he was fully God and fully man at the same time, it helps us to be able to look to him as our example, and it will, I hope, as it has with me, it will with you, give you some, some real clear application about how to live and how to look to Christ for the answers and the, and the, and the, the way to live life. Now, the dual nature of Christ, the fact that he is fully God and fully man, remains a mystery. It's one of those things. Uh, when you try to explain it, you get so far and then you have to stop. It's like the Trinity. We all believe in the tr that God is triune, that he is three persons in one. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, yet they are all fully God and you, you, you try to get into the explanation of that, and eventually you're going to hit a wall because our finite minds just can't wrap our heads around that fully. Or it might be like how the sovereignty of God and the faith of men inter, interplay. How we can say that we believed in Jesus Christ, 
and we chose God from our perspective, and yet we know that God, even before we were born, had chosen us to be in him. And how those two things work together, I don't know. It's like two parallel truths that just run like tracks out into eternity. I don't know how they cross. They're both true, according to the scriptures, but it's hard to meld them together. And this one is, is the same. When you start thinking about your Savior and the fact that he is fully God and fully man, there's a lot of questions that you just can't answer and that we're not going to be able to answer. But I do want to delve into some of it with you this morning because I think there's, there's a lot of value in doing that. To learn about how Jesus lived as a man will help us greatly to know how, as men and women, we should live. He is our supreme example. And how he did things, what he did to prepare himself, how he faced the realities of his life, how he faced temptation in his life, how he responded to people, all of those things are, are given to us as an example of how we should live. And thinking about his humanity will help us do that. There's four areas I want to cover with you this morning. If you're taking notes, the first is Jesus' emptying of himself. We're going to take a look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, and delve into that passage just a little, because that passage of all of them in the New Testament uh, gets more deeply into this dual nature of Christ than any other, and pull some, some application from that. Second, we'll look at the fact that Jesus received power from the Holy Spirit, which is a very interesting concept. Jesus, in his life, in his humanity, was empowered by the Spirit of God. Third, we're going to look at the fact that Jesus grew in wisdom. And fourth, we're going to look at Jesus' resistance of temptation. There's a lot of other things we could look at, but these were the ones that I really felt were relevant for this morning. So for the first one, I'd like you to turn to Philippians chapter 2 with me. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. And take a look at the, what we call the emptying of Christ. The emptying of Christ, theologically, uh, I've heard it called the kenosis, which is the Greek word for the emptying that we'll see in verse 6, oh, sorry, verse 7. Um, but we'll, we'll look at that as we get through it. So verse 5 through 8. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, had no beginning. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is Jesus Christ. Go down to verse 14 in, in John 1 and you'll find that the Word was, was full of grace and truth, speaking specifically of Jesus Christ. And so as we think of Jesus as the second person of the Trinity, as God, he had no beginning. He was there in the beginning with God. So at the very beginning of our Bibles, when it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, Jesus Christ was there. And he was actually the agent through which everything was created. 
It says in John 1, 3 that everything was created by him. Without him, was, uh, nothing was created that was created. He, he was the agent of creation. He was who God used to create the earth. And so before creation, where was he? He was with God in the beginning. He was there. He existed. So the eternal Son of God had no beginning, but the incarnate Son had a beginning. And we all know where that is. It was with Mary. And I want you to keep your finger there and turn to Luke 1 and read this with me. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. And in this passage, you will see references to both the eternal Son of God and the incarnate Son of God, who are the same person, but with these, these two natures. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail! favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called who? The Son of the Most High, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God who existed before creation, this is him. He is the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So in the same verse, you have a reference to Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God, the Son of the Most High, but also a Son of David. So he was David's great, 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 and I think you have to go 28 generations to get to Jesus. So he was a man. He was a descendant of David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Again, another reference to his eternality. And his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. So how can that be? How can a person have no beginning and have a beginning? How can a person be eternal but not be eternal? I don't know, but Jesus did it. And if you flip back to Philippians chapter 2, we have a few things in here I just want to point out as we begin thinking about this this morning. First thing in verse 6 is this passage declares firmly that Jesus Christ and God are equal. They are the same. There, there is no difference between God and Christ in essence, meaning that Jesus Christ um, is God. The deity of Christ exists. 
And if you look in verse 6, it says, although he existed in the form of God, the word form there is morphe, and it doesn't mean exactly the same thing as we think of it in English. If you think of the word form in English, you think of a shape. It's in the shape of something, or it looks like something. The, the word here doesn't mean external shape. It means internal essence. It's the very nature of something, or the substance, or the, or the inner nature of something that, it's, um, that he's talking about here. And if you look down in verse 7, you'll see the same exact word used of Jesus, who took on the form of a servant. And I don't think there's anybody here who would say that Jesus wasn't a servant. He was the very essence of a servant when he came. He gave up much, as we'll see, to even become a human being for us. And he gave up, gave up much as a human being so that we could live. And Jesus himself said, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So Jesus Christ wasn't just in the form of a servant. He was a servant, and that's the whole point. The same word is used in verse 6 where it says he was in the form of God. It wasn't that he just looked like God or had the shape of God or was in somehow, somehow he was like God. He was God. The very essence of God was in him. The, the morphe or the form of God, although he existed in the form of God. Um, Paul also uses the word isa in the Greek, or it's translated equality in verse 6 at the end, where it says he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And that word equality, again, it, that's exactly what it means. It's an, it's an equal. If, you're, if you have a math equation, you, you have something that's equal on, on each side for it to work. God and Jesus are part of the same equation. They are equal. They are the same. There's, there's no difference in essence. They are both God. They were both the creator, although they are two persons. So if Jesus is equal to God, then he must be God. So how does this work then when it says that he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself? So... The, the big questions are, did God, did Jesus cease being God when he became a man? Did he give up being God? So who is God? God, God is omnipresent. He is omniscient. Omnipresent meaning he's everywhere. There's nowhere you can go where God is not. Jesus Christ was limited in time and space to a point in history, just like we are. None of us can really even fathom being in more than one place at once. Maybe some of us would like to be more, more than one place at once at times so we can get more done. But how could you even think about it? I mean, we, all of our existence, we, we think of ourselves just from within ourselves. We can only see what our eyes see. I can't see what's going on in Florida right now. But God can because he's there while at the same time being here. He's everywhere at once. That's what makes him God. So did Jesus stop being God? when he took on human form? No. What about the knowledge of God? Is there anything God doesn't know? And we pride ourselves in knowledge. We study, we earn degrees, we go to college, we, we read books, we, we experience things in life and we become knowledgeable about this, that, or the other thing and we, and we are proud of our knowledge, but 
God's knowledge. Everything we know comes from him. Everything we discover in this life came from him. I've heard it said, God knows everything there is to know in one single act of knowing. He just knows. God doesn't learn. God doesn't need to study. He's the test maker. He made the world. And so when Jesus came, and we'll see that he, learned, he grew in wisdom. Jesus was a baby. He was a child. He was a teenager. He became a man and went through our human experience, and he learned along the way. Did that, does that mean that he's no longer God? It's a t- kind of tough questions. It says in the verse that he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So whatever this dual nature ends up being in your mind or mine, whatever it is in truth, Jesus was willing to give it up. He didn't regard this equality with God something that he was going to hang on to, but by contrast, in contrast, he emptied himself. And there's a a key thought in here I want you to get to. Jesus did not empty out anything from himself. So when Jesus became a man, he didn't become anything less than he was when he was God. He didn't empty out his, his deity. He emptied himself is the way it's put. And I think that's a key distinction in helping us to understand that. He didn't lose his divine nature, but it's almost backwards math. In order to, in order to make something more than it is, you have to add to it but he became more than it is by emptying himself. So he, he added by subtracting, kind of, which is an odd thought in itself. I, I read a couple of illustrations about this that they were helpful. They're, they're not perfect, but maybe will help us to kind of see how this, how this works. And I'll get to the application here in just a second. Um, picture yourself walking into a new car showroom. It's time to purchase a new car. And so you walk in and the salesperson shows you the car that you are really, really interested in and it is fine. It's shiny, it's sporty, it's whatever you like. And you wanna, you wanna drive it, you wanna test it out. So he gives you the keys and you get in and you take the car out for a spin. And you get it up on the highway and you roll down the windows and you're really liking this. It's an awesome car. You get off the highway and you start taking the car out into some back roads, but it's been rainy and there's been some, some puddles and mud and it's covered the road and so you have a little fun with the car and you start slip sliding all over the road and you spin up the tires and you're checking out the brakes and seeing how fast the car can go and, and having some fun with it and you drive back to the dealer and the car is totally encased in mud like one of those trucks that have been out mud and you know what they look like. All you can see is the little windshield things. And aside from the horror of the salesperson, you could say of that car, was that still a brand new shiny car? Hmm. Yeah, you could. Underneath all that muck and that mud, what's there? A brand new shiny car in all its glory, but it took on a new nature <laughs> that was covered in muck. And the, and the true glory that was underneath there couldn't be seen. It was there, 
but it couldn't express itself the way that it really should be able to express itself. And, and it probably will again. The, the muck will come off, which doesn't really hold true to the humanity of Christ because he's still a man. So the illustration doesn't prove all the way through. But the glory was there. It wasn't given up. But when he added his human nature, it wasn't able to be expressed the way that it was before. Think of um, a king in a kingdom who is supreme and sovereign over all the land. He owns much. He has a large palace. He has people at his beck and call at any time. Um, more resources than you and, I, you and I could ever imagine. And learns that there's people in his kingdom who are beggars and don't have much. And he wants to learn of them, and so he decides that he's going to become one of them. You've probably seen story, heard stories or seen movies with this type of, type of thing. And so he takes off of his royal clothes and he puts on tattered clothes and he goes to live on the street with the beggars and he becomes one. He refuses to eat, he refuses to go home at night, he refuses any of the things that he could snap his fingers and get at any time so that he could be like them and learn of them. Another illustration perhaps of how this dual nature could work. Jesus Christ at any time could have called on the angels Satan even tempted him to do so, didn't he? Call the angels right now, and they'll feed you. They'll keep you from dashing your foot against the stone. Jump off. They'll catch you. But he wouldn't. He was still God, but the expression of his deity, the expression of his, his godliness in that sense, couldn't be fully seen while he was a human being. So what's the application of all this to us? As we look at Jesus Christ and we realize what he did when he took on human nature, I mean, even us, as a human being, would you even want to consider going backwards in your life? Would you want to consider having less than you have now? It doesn't make sense. Everything in our lives are driven to better ourselves, to gain more than we have now, to put ourselves in a better financial position, to, to gain more property or, or buying power, whatever it is. We're always trying to advance. Who wants to go backward? Not me. And yet, what did Jesus Christ in an extreme way do when he took on flesh? Would you want to be going to, to, to be God and then become a man? knowing what humanity is like? No way. So even in that simple thought, to think about the fact that Jesus Christ emptied himself and took on the form of a servant so that he could become obedient, even to the point of death, should cause a heart response in us that is just overflowing with thankfulness. He did what no one else would do. He did what we would never do. He lowered himself, he emptied himself, and gave of himself for us. And that fact ought to just call us to worship. It ought to call us to humbly thank God for who he is and what he's done for us, at a minimum. But there's also a call to action in, the, in this passage. Did you catch it at the very beginning? In verse 5? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
And what type of a mind is that? One who humbles himself and serves others. What an example. You want to look to the world for your example of how to live as a Christian? Go ahead. You're not going to find it. You want to look to yourself? You're not going to find it. But Jesus Christ is the perfect example for us. What did he do? He, he gave up his rights, so to speak. He gave up the ability to express his divinity and took on humanity so that he could suffer. He did many wonderful things while he was here. He healed people, he taught people, he helped people, but his one goal in taking on flesh was to go to the cross and to suffer. And he suffered all along the way. He suffered physically, he suffered mentally, he suffered socially. Jesus never owned a house, he never owned property. The whole time he was here, he gave his life for others. And what an example that is. And we are called to have that same mind. Have this mind in you. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So the emptying, great example of, for us in the life of Jesus as he took on humanity for us to remain humble and seek the fear of God in our life as we live with each other. Second one, I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 10. Second one is the resource of the Holy Spirit. I think another undertaught doctrine in the Christian realm. I don't know why, perhaps, our uh, fear of being associated with Pentecostalism or the charismatic movement has caused us to not talk so much about the Holy Spirit, but you start looking for the word spirit in the New Testament and it is over and over and over and over again. The Spirit of God. And interestingly, as you, as you look at the life of, the, of Jesus Christ, many times in the New Testament you'll find that Jesus received power from the Spirit of God. Now I'll get a little ahead of myself here. He was God. How could he receive power from the Holy Spirit if he was God? He didn't need it. But as a man, he sure did. He needed the power of the Spirit, the empowering ministry of the Spirit for him to live and do the things that he did. Look at Acts chapter 10, verse 38. This is a sermon Peter was giving in the house of Cornelius. And this verse says, You know Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. And you remember when that happened for the first time, right? at the baptism, and God spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And the Spirit of God came down like a dove and descended upon Jesus Christ. And so God anointed him with power, and then what did he do? He went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So a couple of questions as we, as we start thinking about this. How did Jesus live his life of obedience, perfectly carrying out God's will? The simple answer and the one we usually gravitate to is, well, it's easy. He was God. He just did it naturally because he was God. That, that's who he was. What I'm suggesting to you this morning is that there's more to it than that. That's almost a cop-out to say that. And it doesn't really give us room in our lives to use Christ as a true example of how to live obediently before God if we just say 
He didn't have to try. If Jesus was perfectly divine, is it really possible for us to follow in his steps not being divine? And again, the instinctive answer is to say that Jesus lived perfectly because he was perfect. He couldn't help it. But I think there's a slightly different way to look at it that that is a little more accurate and biblical. We need to see Jesus, the man, as anointed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was empowered by the Spirit of God to accomplish what he came to accomplish all along the way. Um, I'd like you to turn to Isaiah 11 to show that even in the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 11, there's already a reference to Jesus being empowered by the Spirit. Verses 1 through 3. It says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Jesse being in the line of Christ, the shoot being Christ himself. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. It's speaking of Jesus Christ. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And, what's the next phrase? The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of God. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his eyes hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor. So these are things that we desire, aren't they? Do you desire to have wisdom in making good decisions in your life? Do you desire to have understanding? I do, above, pretty much above everything else. That's what I would like to have in my life, to be able to see clearly the path that I need to take. And I think everybody would say amen to that in one way or another. A spirit of counsel and strength, to be able to see what is the right decision in this situation and to be confident in the steps that I take. A spirit of knowledge and fear. Sure, those are things that I desire in my life. That's why I read the word. That's why we study it together and preach. We want to grow in our knowledge of God because the knowledge of God is the precursor to the fear of God and living for God. You have to know. You have to have the knowledge. And where does it come from? The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding and knowledge and counsel and strength, they come from the spirit of God. And as you look at the way that Jesus handled himself, how would you have handled yourself with the Pharisees? How would you have handled yourself with Peter? How would you have handled yourself with the Samaritan woman? In each instance, as you watch what Jesus did, these things were absolutely true. He had a spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and strength and a fear of God all the way through. How did he do that? Again, the easy answer is to say, he's God. It just happened that way, but no. Why is the reference here to the spirit of God empowering him to do these things? Because we need to know it. Because that's where our our power comes from as well. Um, 
You don't need to turn there if you don't want, but Luke chapter 4 is another example of this. And as, as you look through the Gospels, you'll find these, these references to the Spirit, which I generally, generally just kind of bounce over. They're there. Never really think about them. Luke 4, verse 17 says, the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book, and he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. They couldn't, they, they were just glued to what he had just said. And he was referring to himself. He knew what he was reading, and he understood that he was that one where the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. And he began to say to them, Today the Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus himself knew full well that the Spirit of God was upon him. Matthew chapter 12 is another one. This one, he's dealing with a miracle and the disciples. Verse 22, there was brought to Jesus a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb, and he healed him so that the dumb man spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and began to say, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, which is another name for Satan. This man doesn't have power from God. He has power from Satan. That's how he's doing these things. Don't listen to him. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. So he's saying, what you're saying doesn't make sense. If Satan wanted that person to be possessed, why would he cast him out? He's stepping on his own foot. He's shooting himself in the foot. Satan wouldn't do that to himself. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? And if I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Whoa, that was a little zing back at the Pharisees. Consequently, they shall be your judges. But how does Jesus cast out demons? Next verse. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God. It was the work of the Spirit of God in his life that enabled him to do the things he was doing, to live the way that he needed to live. Back in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, when Peter was preaching and said that this, um, the Holy Spirit came upon him, God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and power. Peter, of all people, knew that Jesus was God. He spent more time with him than pretty much any other disciple. He was sinking in the water, and when Jesus reached out and pulled him out, he saw the miracles of Christ. He heard Jesus speak. He was in that conversation uh, when Jesus was asking him, who, who do you think I am, Peter? He said, you're the Son of God. He knew who he was, and yet here he says that he was one who was anointed by the Spirit of God. So what? So what are we talking about here? Jesus as a man gives us a clear example that if you want to live for God, you need to be committed to and yielded to the Spirit of God in your life. 
There's no other way to do it. We have all kinds of, you know, how to be Christian for dummies books. Step one, step two, step three, do this, do that. And sure, I mean, the commands are in the New Testament. We need to obey them. But the key to living for God is to let God live through you and to get out of the way and to let the Spirit of God, who has the power to open your mouth and let you speak to somebody else about the gospel or to overcome a sin that is besetting you and that you're addicted to, who's going to have the power to help? It's the Spirit of God and Him alone. And when we learn the secret that we need to be yielded to Him and let Him do His work, then we're following in the steps of Christ, because that's exactly what he did as a man. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 says, After this, who's going to come upon you? The Spirit of God. Let me just read it. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, says the Lord. It's the power of the Spirit of God in our lives that enables us to to preach, enables us to speak to our neighbors, enables us to overcome sin, to not yield to the flesh, to be patient, to have that disciplined time of reading the Word. It's the Spirit of God that's going to allow us to do those things. Let Him work in your life. We can do no less. We see Jesus, who humbly took on flesh in His humanity, yielding Himself to the power of the Spirit. That's what we need to do, too. Quickly, a third one. We see Jesus growing in wisdom. This is another aspect of his humanity. This is in Luke chapter 2. Two verses. Verse 40 and verse 52. This is in the account when Jesus had gone with his family down to Jerusalem for the Passover. And there was a large group of people who went together. And on the way back, his parents couldn't find him. They were looking for Jesus and he was missing And so they started asking around, and he was back in Jerusalem and had never left. And so they went back and got him. So this is in that account. But in verse 40, it says, The child, speaking of Christ, continued to grow and to become strong and to increase in wisdom. And the grace of God was upon him. Verse 52 It has a similar thing. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with men. And this is a truth about the humanity of Jesus. Again, you put that against the divinity of Christ and you say, how can this be possible? God who already knows everything, how can he grow in wisdom or grow in knowledge or grow in any way at all? It's because he was fully human and he did grow and he needed to grow. He grew in wisdom. The wisdom here is the, the, or the growth of wisdom is associated with his growth in physical stature. And so just as you think of a, a young child, and many of us are old enough now, you, only, you visit kids once a year, twice a year, and every time you see them, they've grown a little bit, and they look different. And pretty soon they look like they're little adults, and then pretty soon they are adults, and you see that growth process, especially when you haven't seen somebody for some time. Well, Jesus went through that same thing. He grew as a man. And in verse 52, it says he kept increasing in, and then it gives these these two together, wisdom and stature. And so the same way that Jesus grew in stature was the way that he grew in wisdom. It was an increase. It wasn't anything fake. 
And this wisdom resulted in the favor of God. God was well pleased as he grew in this wisdom. What was the source of his wisdom? Where did he learn what he learned? First place he learned anything was where? At home. Mom and dad. His mom and dad taught him. Where else did he learn? Teachers at the synagogue. Interestingly, when they found Jesus in this account back in the synagogue, do you know what he was doing? No, he was not teaching. He was asking questions. In verse 46, it came about after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. You think you know theology? Are you so proud to say, you don't have to tell me anything, I know it already. Don't talk to me about this. When Jesus himself sat with the teachers, listening to what they were saying and asking them questions, how bold are we? If we want to please God, God found favor in his growth and wisdom. And one of the ways that we can please God is to open up our minds to the word of God and let it come in. To be in a place where we're going we're to have good theological discussions with each other. Talk about these things. Listen to teachers. Ask questions. Grow in your knowledge of God. Where did his main teaching come from? I think it came from the Spirit of God. Again, to illumine his mind to the understanding of the word. Just before his temptation in Matthew chapter 4, what was Jesus doing? Praying and reading, studying the word. We know it was Deuteronomy because that was where he, every time Satan came along and tempted him, he, he quoted a verse from Deuteronomy right back at him. The Spirit of God was active in his life, teaching him what the word of God meant. What's the application for us? I think it's pretty obvious. The Spirit of God and the Word of God are so closely connected. Part of the Spirit of God empowering Jesus was to illumine his mind to an understanding of God's Word, and that's what we need to do for ourselves, to let the, the Spirit of God teach us. I think we need to see the importance of engaging in biblical discussion with each other rather than just defaulting to the Red Sox or the Patriots all the time. Let's talk about something theological challenge each other to think about what it means to trust God, what it means to fear God, what it really means to forgive somebody, instead of just waiting for a Sunday morning for a sermon to happen along. Let's be involved in it, talking to each other, being involved in studying and thinking about the Word of God on our own, asking questions where we need to ask questions. And again, we see the humility of Jesus in verse 51 in this passage in, in Luke 2. Because after his parents found him, what did he do? He went down with them back to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And so again, we see the, the, the humble nature of Jesus in this verse. Last thing, and I'll fly through it. It's real quick. Resisting temptation. It's another final thing we can learn from Christ. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted 
in all things as we are, yet without sin. Another big question in this verse. Was Jesus' temptation real? Could Jesus have sinned? Absolutely not. He was God. God cannot sin. Impossibility. So if God cannot sin, was his temptation real? Was it a real temptation? Because for us, when we think about a temptation, there's always the possibility that we're going to fall in that temptation and not do what's right. Was that an impossibility with Jesus? Again, it's one of those things where you've got to really think deeply about this because your mind can't just quickly wrap around it. And the answer to this question is important because if we are going to follow Jesus in his steps, how he resisted temptation becomes extremely important to us because we are all faced with those same things all the time. We are tempted by our flesh. We are tempted by Satan. We are tempted by the things in the world all the time. How did Jesus face that temptation? It wasn't just that he was God and so we brush it off and say, well, I can't look at that. It wasn't like that at all. We need to understand how he lived. I want to give you another two illustrations. I'll close with this that will help us see, I think, how we can look at Christ as one who can sympathize with our temptations in life. And we can look to him to see how he faced those temptations and do the same things to find victory in our own life. The answer comes when we think about what Jesus could not do and what he did not do. Was the reason that Jesus didn't sin because he couldn't sin? And I say, no. It's not a good way to look at it. Think of it this way. Uh, imagine an Olympic swimmer who has trained for years to swim in a race and decided that he wanted to do a set a world record for long-distance swimming. So he's going to swim all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. He doesn't want to drown. And so a rescue boat follows him all the way, never more than four or five feet away from his position, so that if he gasped and went under, he could be rescued. So the man sets out, and he starts swimming. And he swims and swims and swims, and he makes it all the way across under his own steam, under his own power, and he breaks the world record and does it. My question to you is, could the man have drowned? Could he have drowned? No. There was a boat right there. They wouldn't have let him drown. I mean, I suppose you could say that, you know, Something could have happened to the boat. But I'm saying in the illustration, it's impossible. Jesus could, Jesus, the man, the swimmer, could not have drowned. The power was there to make sure that he did not drown. But did he drown? No. Why? Because he swam. He prepared. He went across on his own power. And I know, again, it's not, there's no perfect illustration of this, but... Think of it in those terms. Jesus didn't sin, not because he couldn't sin, but because he didn't sin. He chose to not sin as a human being. He chose to read the word of God. He chose to pray. He chose to prepare himself for the temptations of Satan. Do we? If Jesus needed to, how much more do we need to do that?
Maybe a brilliant mathematician is going to take a test and the teacher says, you can use your calculator. And the calculator's sitting there on the desk, but he takes the entire test and doesn't even turn it on. Does all the figuring in his head or on paper, and he aces the test. Got 100. Could he have failed? Same question. No. He had the calculator right there. All he'd do is plug in the, the numbers and he'd got the answers correct. But he didn't use it. Kind of the same idea. Could Jesus have failed? No. Could he have given in to the temptation? No. Did he? No. But not because he couldn't. It's because he didn't. He studied the word. He read. He prayed. And he relied on the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at the humanity of Christ differently. When you're struggling in your own life with sin, when you're struggling with what do I do? How do I, how do I live? How do I answer these questions? How do I make this decision? What am I supposed to do? Look to the hu human Jesus. Look to the man Jesus, who is God, and see how he lived. See how he humbled himself. See how he relied on the power of the Holy Spirit. See how he gave himself and served others. See how he read and studied and grew in wisdom and apply those things to your life. You want to grow as a Christian? He gave us the example. It's all right there. You wonder why we keep harping about keep reading the word, keep praying, keep trusting in God and the Holy Spirit. That is the key. That's the answer to living a holy and a righteous and a faithful life, an obedient life to God. If these things aren't in place, we're going to default to our old nature. We're going to default to our sin. And we're going to keep struggling and keep struggling. And that's all I have to say about that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us such a supreme example for us to look at and, and to live by in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that our thoughts about him would be thoughts of praise and worship and thankfulness as we think about the fact that you as God came to the earth and took on a human form so that you could ultimately not only live with us and be with us and teach us but that so that you could sacrifice yourself wholly and completely for us we thank you for that we are humbled by it and I pray that we would apply these truths to our lives that we would be more apt to be humble before people and before you, that you would help us to grow in our own wisdom and understanding of your word, that we would release control of our lives from ourselves and give it to the Holy Spirit who's able to help us with these things and to face temptation, Lord, like you did by, by understanding your word, by praying and relying upon you when the temptation comes. And so, Lord, just ask that these truths would be burned into us and help us to apply them in ways that will help us grow in Jesus' name. Amen.